We all want to make sense of life, of who we are and why we are, and to know that what we do day in and day out matters. Once we discover that, that there is no chasm between heaven and earth, we're able to understand the coherence of the work of God and of our lives in the world. This is the seamless life, to see the truest truths of the universe woven into the very meaning of life, labor, learning and liturgy. Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast and I'm quoting from the publicity for a new InterVarsity Press IVP book by my guest today on the show, Stephen Garber. The book is called The Seamless Life, A Tapestry of Love and Learning, Worship and Work. Stephen is Professor of Marketplace Theology and Director of the Program in Leadership, Theology and Society at Regent College Vancouver. Through his many years as a professor, he's become a teacher of many people in many places. I like that description, Stephen. Uh, serving as a consultant to foundations, corporations and universities. And Stephen joins me now from the States. Stephen, hello. Good afternoon or good morning to you, uh, wherever this is in New Zealand today. But good morning for us, because we're I think I think we're a, we're a day ahead of you, and um, okay. we were dealing with three time zones earlier, and we were getting <laughs> ourselves a bit perplexed. But however, there we are. It's like being in Doctor Who. I should Hood. say to you that you know when COVID came to the world two and a half years ago now, um, I was teaching at Regent at the time as professor of marketplace theology when the plague uh, plagued us all over the world. I finished out the semester teaching by Zoom and then did a summer school course. And then my wife and I decided to come home to Washington, D.C. to come back into what I've called the deeper, longer vocation of our lives. So we've been home now for more than two years. So I'm no longer in Vancouver, B.C. So oh, OK, well, you're in Washington. Right. Yes. There we go. That's straighten that out. Thank you very much. Uh, you're a man of a many traveled man, a much traveled man. And, and this is, is reflected in your book, which I found um, I found fascinating. You write about yeah. all sorts of stories. You've traveled all over the world and, and worked with all sorts of people. So I want to ask you, though, first of all, why do you think about vocation the way you do? It's such a good question, Brent. And if we had a long time to walk along one of your, you know, meadows or beaches, we could talk about it for hours, I suppose. But the very first essay in the book is about my grandfather. Um, and uh, there's another essay in the book about my grandfather as well. I think it's I called it On Vocation. But uh, my grandfather bought and sold cattle in the part of America called Colorado. And I grew up with my grandparents in the summer times and I was enamored by their lives. They loved me very dearly and took me into their hearts with, you know, with generosity and with affection. And and uh, I watched my grandfather at work for all the years of growing up. And and uh, um, I think what impressed me, though I had no language like this at the time, until I began to read more of the church and its fathers and mothers, and beginning to realize that Benedict. 1,500 years ago, had called a community out of the crumbling Roman Empire to come and, and pray and work together, ora e labora. And uh, I saw my grandfather lead us as a family, literally on our knees night by night for all the years of my growing up. We would have dinner together. We would have family worship together. On our knees, we'd pray together. He would pray for, you know, your kingdom to come, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. But I would watch him the next day, you know, buying cattle in, throughout Colorado. And I realized that there was a certain unusual professional vocational integrity, though those words I didn't have as a 10-year-old boy. And I realized that, you know, it wasn't a, ch wasn't a choice I had to make between being devoted to God and serious about my work. 
that they could be somehow held together. I use the word in this book, or seamlessly. And uh, my grandfather incarnated that for me in a way which even as a 10-year-old boy, I could begin to make sense of. I wonder what it means to think about work seamlessly and life seamlessly and everything yeah. seamlessly. What is a yeah. seamless view of the universe? Yeah. Again, it's a big question. We could have a long conversation about it. But one of the other essays, I'm since we're talking about the book, I'm going to reflect on these questions in light of the what I, the book has been has argued. But there's a there's an essay called "On Good Business," and uh, I've written about my work with the Mars Corporation, which makes a lot of stuff that is sold all over the world. M and M's being one of its most iconic brands, and pet um, food. And probably half the pet food that the world draw, uses is a Mars Corporation project product, actually. Um, and uh, but I am involved in a fifteen-year-long project with them that is, I would say, a surprisingly serious effort to rethink the business of business. We've called the project the Economics of Mutuality. And uh, there's a lot I could say about that, but here I will only simply say that you know I've 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 reflected on this question in that essay and. Uh, um, it's easy to say, and I think many people would say this in the church all over the world. Well, you see, politics is politics, isn't it? Of course, I'm a good Christian too, Catholic, Anglican, Baptist, you know, but politics is politics after all. You know, when you're doing politics, you have to do politics. Then you can be a Christian, you know, when the work is done in the day, you know. Or business is business. You can say the same thing. Um, and then, of course, when December comes and I've got to think through my books and how much money I've made, I can think through how generous I can be this year. And But business has its own rules, of course. And you play by the rules when you're in the world of business. Uh, now, a lot could be argued about that. But I would say that in my own dispositions, I've never been content with living in that kind of a bifurcated world. Um, and I've always, since my 20s, have, I would say, yearned to think more Christianly about the life that I live, uh, whether it's sexuality, whether it's economics or politics or the arts, or you can pick a part of the part of the world, um, a part of life. And so for me, you know, to think more seamlessly is to, um, to think how in fact has God made his world? Um, and how are we supposed to live in that world? Um, in your description of your own work, Brent, you talk about the story, you know, and the story from this beginning to this end and the chaos that has come into the story. So I would say, you know, in my own thinking, I see us as human beings, whether we're Hindus, whether we're evolution materialists, whether we're Christians, as all story-formed people. And so the deeper question, I suppose, is what's the story we're actually living in? What is the story that really is the story of human life under the sun? And for me, it's a story from creation to consummation that gives a certain comprehensiveness and coherence to how we see our lives in the world. You write a lot about business and about work because that's a lot of what you do, isn't it? You're speaking yes. to corporations and, and business people and, and speaking to people about business and leadership. Can we come on and just explore for a minute this whole area of uh, business and flourishing and in what ways can we do business and in what ways can businesses do business so that individuals can flourish so i think new zealand celebrates christmas doesn't it you're not beyond oh, absolutely that. absolutely <laughs> we, miss, we miss out on thanksgiving day unfortunately uh -huh. but we I do understand the difference <laughs> the global citizen to understand the difference there um but you know since you are of course somehow 
in a part of the Commonwealth uh, in New Zealand. Your stories in some ways are, are our stories too, even though we're not officially part of the Commonwealth anymore. Um, but one of the, I have behind me in the bookshelves, you can maybe see a little bit of on one side of me, a whole row in a wall of books uh, of 1870s versions of Charles Dickens' novels. Um, they're prized to me. It's all within about 15, 20 years of when he wrote these stories. So they're not first editions, but I'm a professor. I might have, you know, uh, anybody other than that. So I can buy 1870s versions and probably not first editions. So, but I prize the books. And one of the books I prize the most and throughout all of the year, but especially in this Christmas time of year, is one called A Christmas Carol. Mm. And uh, so think about the story. It is Ebenezer Scrooge. And of course, it's uh, Tiny Tim. Um, it's sort of a surprise to many people that, in fact, Karl Marx and Charles Dickens were writing about the very same questions, the same troubles in the very same time in the very same city. In the 1850s and 60s, they both were writing in London about the industrializing Europe that was creating gaps between the haves and the have-nots. And, you know, microcosmically, Dickens embodies this in his story, A Christmas Carol, between the, the greedy capitalists, to use those harsh words, and the left-behind little boy who suffers. And uh, um, But, of course, you know, the story includes Jacob Marley, too, who was the business partner of Scrooge and that first terrible long and dark night of the soul of Ebenezer Scrooge, Marley visits him at the beginning of the night and says to him, Ebenezer, you know, you have forgotten the point of your life, the point of your labor. You've imagined this is just about you, actually. It's about the accumulation of your own small little fortune, actually, because you've forgotten human beings. And business has to be about human beings because it has to be about more than just you, you see. For us to be what we ought to be in the world, you've used the word flourishing, and I do too. You know, it'll have to be, you have to somehow expand your sense of what this, what your life is about to realize that business actually involves you in the questions and hopes of human beings in this city and in the world. So there's something about flourishing that actually is wonderfully imagined and, you know, set forth in, in Dickens' work. And I would say that, you know, we could go lots of places, but John Paul II wrote a lot about flourishing, you know, and I think a lot about flourishing too. It's really the shalom of God, isn't it? You know, it's really Jeremiah saying to the people of Israel in Babylon, exiled as they were, seek the flourishing of your city. Uh, build houses, get, have families, plant trees. Remember, if the city doesn't flourish, you won't flourish. So pray for Babylon to flourish. Mm. Yes, I think we're all undergoing a, a certain amount of rethinking about the way we live and work in, in the wake of current things like climate change. I, I wonder how you've worked, though, with companies and organizations who are seeking the flourishing of their cities. <laughs> Again, it's a big question, and there's a, a lot that could be said about that. Um, well, I will just reside within one other one relationship, and it is this Mars Corporation project that we have quite elusively, but I would think I would say uh, pointedly named the economics of mutuality. Now, Mars is not a parochial company; it is not a company that has in its mind to somehow create little ichthus, little fishes on M&Ms around the world, not trying to make a Christian product for Christian people. That's not the Mars family. It's a family-owned company. It isn't the Mars Corporation. But there are people of, of serious thought and commitment and intention who work for the company, and I've been drawn in by them, actually. And uh, 
the initial breakfast I had 15 years ago was with two executives who said we were asked by one of the owners, how much money should we make this year? I said, oh, it's an unusual question for a corporate, you know, uh, corporation owner to, you know, to ask, where's it come from? And after about two hours of asking questions like, where's that come from? Why are you asking that question? And that's, that's quite a question to, to me about that question, really. Um, finally, it began to be clear to me, they were going deeper than simply a, a baptizing of sort of basic Milton Friedman capitalist economics. And to say, no, we're asking a deeper kind of question here. And the question has to do with, in fact, our relationships with people around us as well, um, with communities, with cultures, with societies. And uh, so, for example, we drew in, you know, to our our work pretty early on. I introduced the Mars people to Peter Berger, the sociologist who'd given his whole life to asking questions about the relation of democracy to to, to capitalism, of, of social flourishing to economic well-being. And we hired him and he created a research project in West Africa, which is where most of the cocoa is grown. And, and cocoa, of course, is the big product for the Mars Corporation and its chocolates. Um, and we, he spent two years on our behalf trying to understand <clears throat> the relationship between people's sense of well-being and money to be made by the growing of, of cocoa and, and it's sell, selling on the world marketplace. Um, and uh, I would say we asked as serious a question as we could ask about that, because um, we had, as I said, we have to actually be interested in in the housing questions and the education questions and the you know the health questions you know of the communities where this cocoa is being grown. Um, it can't be simply that we are extorting you know their best products and offering the cheapest prices and you know selling them to in, to near people in New York City. It has to be somehow, if it's going to be an economics of mutuality with reality to that, those words, there has to be actually an intention to care about um, how this gets worked out for everybody involved. Economics of mutuality. Mm. What does it take, I wonder, for a city to flourish? Ah, boy. I was been involved in a discussion about that this week. In fact, maybe two discussions this week. Um, or maybe a whole week of discussions about that, because I, I often am, actually. I serve as a senior fellow for a, a, a foundation, a trust here in the U.S. called the Murdoch Trust. And they're located in the Pacific Northwest, which is a long ways from where I live in Washington, D.C. It's in the Portland area, the Seattle area. Um, but it's a, a private foundation um, that gives away, in U.S. dollars terms, over, uh, over $100 million a year to projects in that part of the country, especially, but to cities like Portland, but also to small towns out in the hinterlands of those those western northwestern states too, and uh, been a, now fifty years of work trying to figure out well what would it mean to come alongside. I've called them, and actually on their website now it has the same kind of language. But I long described them as a common grace for the common good foundation, and uh, so they give you know diversely and generously to the Oregon Shakespeare Theater, to, um, to you know, the work of young life in, in the high in the schools of Portland. They give generously to building an engineering building to for Portland State University. They work on you know protecting fisheries and water wa waterways in Montana and Idaho. Um, they work, they help support building you know museums representing the Basque people in the city of Boise, Idaho. You know, they they uh, have projects for a small town would say, you know, we have been here for 125 years now and and we are doing well, but not so well either. And 
Murdoch has resources to bring to bear to help analyze what are the conditions that have to be in place for actually a, a city, a small town to flourish. It needs this, and it needs this, and it needs this, and this. And I'm going to, more than I can say about much right now, other than to say that there's been a lot of thought about that, a lot of work for that, and there is our financial resources to offer to a small town to try to say, you know, these things need to be in place for us to have the conditions for us to do well as a city, to be a healthy, healthy place to live. Yes, we're having great debates about that at the moment uh, in New Zealand on the talkbacks are running hot about the state of things and, and what we need to do to make our cities flourish once again. Uh, you have many, and we could talk for hours, there's so much in your book that I, I wanted to follow through and I can't, I can't a- ask about everything. But how does art, we've, we've talked about Shakespeare, how does yeah. art draw us into seeing seamlessly, do you think? And Dickens too. And Dickens. Let's, I love Dickens. <laughs> so I've drawn on two of your good, best, best storytellers. Um, I love Dickens. I spent my teenage years reading my way through the complete works yeah. of Dickens. Fabulous for you. you're, you're a better man because of that, of course. Um, I think so. Yeah. Um, so how does art help us to see more seamlessly? That's the question. Mm-hmm. Well, again, my mind runs and so does yours, Brent, but it never stopped. I spent probably, I don't know, maybe 10 years or more thinking about the pedagogy of Jesus as seriously as I could. Uh, and uh, it never surprises me now that I've done that to come back again to the gospels and uh, have him be asked um, a question by an expert in the law who is troubled, and it may be jealousy. We don't have Luke ten doesn't say, and he was jealous. But watching human hearts, knowing them as we all do, he thinks. So, what was it about him hearing Jesus speak and watching the crowds come? And he, my reading is that he was thinking, well, who are you, and where'd you go to school? You know, yes. books did you read, and who are your professors? What, do, what kind of degree do you have anyway? People are listening to you like that. You know, he's an expert in the law, is the way Luke describes him. And they go back and forth a little bit. There's a little bit of first century Palestinian deconstruction taking place in fact, as well, because he says, well, what is a neighbor anyway? You know, wants to take the word neighbor out of any kind of living embodied context and say, let's abstract the word and say, what is a neighbor anyway? You know, he just said, I won't go there with you, but I will tell you a story. And we know the story simply as the Good Samaritan or, you know, uh, call it whatever we want to call it. And it is a very long story. Most of us could tell it blindfolded, of course, because we know it so quickly and so easily. It isn't very different, though, from the very first of all the parables given to us, you know, which we call the seed in the soils, you know, and it's Jesus, the way the gospel writer accounts for it is he's standing out on the hillsides and says, you see, there was a sower and he had seed and he threw some here and here and here and here. And if you have ears to hear, then hear. And he walks away. You know, and we're more prone to say, well, you probably should dot that I, shouldn't you? How about crossing that T, shouldn't you? And how would they know what you mean if you didn't tell what you mean? But for him, he said, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to make you have to want to know, to become responsible for it. And you have to ask me what I mean by it, if you want to really know what it's about, actually. Um, I would just say, you know, that, I mean, coming back to Shakespeare a little bit, I mean, that centuries and centuries later, Shakespeare were the same artful insight into the human heart says in Hamlet, you know, after the death of his father has been discovered and his uncle and his mother are behind the scheme, he says, ha, maybe I could draw this traveling troop of players into 
making it be seen more clearly for what actually happened. Because you see, the play's the thing to catch the conscience of the king. Well, I would just say that's a deep insight into who we are as human beings. And whether it's Jesus's storytelling, whether it's Shakespeare's storytelling, it's just true. You know, if we want to have the eyes of our heart opened, it's going to come principally, primarily through art and artfulness. Yes, and it works for him, doesn't it? Because Claudius is <laughs> is affected, deeply affected, as we'll find out. And if you haven't read or been to see Hamlet, go and see it or read it because it's fantastic. P.D. James, speaking of storytellers, I can't resist asking you a question about P.D. James, and I'm delighted to see you mention her detective novels in, in your book because I've, I've always loved them. What is it about P.D. James' detective novels that particularly appeals to you? Well... I mean, if Shakespeare told murder mysteries, which we could call Hamlet a murder mystery, couldn't we? Indeed. I mean, we go into the you know the, the media versions we have in the 21st century, and our Netflixes at all are just full of, what? Mostly British murder mysteries. You think, ah, that's too much to see again, isn't it? Please, not, not that again this night of my life. Um, but, of course, you know, some of the best storytellers we've even ever known in the modern world have been women, British women, Dorothy Sayers and P.D. James, who actually are not only brilliant storytellers, but actually saw serious, thoughtful Christian people, too, and uh, whose stories have gone out far and wide. For what? Well, not just because they're about murders, but I think the, the richness to their storytelling for both of them was that they were stories set within a moral universe. And uh, to me, that's a very important part of all this. Uh, one of my great teachers is an American novelist named Walker Percy. And he made an argument along the way that's run its way through my heart and shaped my thinking that bad books lie. They lie most of all about the human condition. Mm. And uh, so for me, Dorothy Sayers, P.D. James, I think what is brilliant in their writing and the imaginations which come to play in the stories they told is that they told the truth about the human condition. Um, not only is, are we capable of murder and terrible, awful murder, but we're also capable of doing the right thing too and wanting the right thing to be done. Um, and actually before the story's all over, the struggle, the hard, hard push and shove of trying to do the right thing in the face of this grievous, murderous mystery. So, Has Inspector Doug Leash learnt to see seamlessly <laughs> in the books, do you think? Yeah, that's a good question, Brent, really. Um, Sorry, I'm just throwing up questions no, as, no, as we I would go. Say that's a good question. I mean, I would say, I mean, I think he is obviously a clay-footed hero, isn't he, for us in the story? He's not offered as, you know, Jesus or, you know, as God incarnate, but he's offered as somebody who's good at what he does. He's persistent. He has insight. He asks good questions. He keeps asking good questions. He keeps pressing in, you know, and in some way, I mean, the only reason that the murder mysteries work as they do is that the, you know, inspector is able to, to bring us enough coherence to the mystery with insight into the mystery that we say, oh, it was him, wasn't it? Now I see what you're, now I understand what happened because you have helped us to see, in fact, the coherence which was there at the beginning, but we didn't have eyes to see until you walked us through the mystery. He has a strong sense of vocation, and one would say, "Oh, I think he uh, does." Really, uh, his, so. his father was a clergyman. Am I right in thinking? So he sees, yes, he, he still uh -huh. sees the world in terms of good and evil to some extent. Yes. I think from a right. I think he really does, and of course, he represents her in her own way. I would, I would argue too, P.D. James. 
Yeah. And and Poirot, who saw his <laughs> vocation very seriously, he almost saw himself as a as a, a judge and arbiter sent by God to sort the mess of the world out, doesn't he? He does exactly. You you've written at one point in your book. We're nearly out of time, but I want to ask you ah, a question. You, you you write. There are times when I feel like I'm walking through the day trying to repair the world. Now, why is that? Why do you feel like that? Well, I am deeply formed by this story from creation to consummation, Brent. Um, it is the story of my life. It's the story of reality. So if it is that story of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, if it's a story of the world that was supposed to be, the world that is, the world that could be the world that someday will be, if that's the four-chapter story of all of life, all of reality. We live in what the theologians in their best efforts describe as the now but the not yet world. And uh, so uh, I would say that I, I see myself within that narrative, uh, that story, and realizing that, you know, I'm called, uh, you know, in my best, you know, the great teacher to all of us, John Stott's, you know, great insight into the teaching of Jesus, Salt and light are are affective qualities, he said, affective commodities. They affect their environments. Um, so why would you blame a dark room for being dark? You could hear Oxbridge and John Stott say, you know, why would you blame meat for rotting? You know, he would say, why wouldn't you ask, well, why wasn't the light turned on? Why wasn't the, the meat salted? You know, you shouldn't blame the world for being the world, Uncle John said. Um, and I think that's, in some ways, those are fighting words for me. They're words that nourish my own imagination and day-by-day -day sense of vocation that you've asked about repairing the world. Well, I would say I do see this very much in the language of Jesus given to me through, you know, John Stott's gifts over, over time. Um, and uh, rather than wanting to blame the world, I want to ask the question, well, what, what could be done? What could be done, actually, whether it's in the arts, whether it's in business, whether it's in education, whether it's in wherever it's going to be in the world. I mean, how how could it be in the day by dayness of my own life that I'm able to hold together a vision of the world that someday will be and working my darndest by the grace of God towards that end? Mm. Stephen Garber, thank you very much. Now, Stephen, where can people find you in social media? Now, you your writings, you have some wonderful writings in the Washington Institute website. Right. Is that right? Yeah. Tell That's us about probably the most, the most, the fullest expression of all this, I suppose. Uh, the full name is the Washington Institute for Faith, Vocation, and Culture. And uh, it was a group that I was involved in beginning many years ago, and now it's led by somebody else. But with my great interest and support, he and I had a, a coffee together on Monday morning this week. Um, and uh, so the thesis behind it is that Whoever you are, again, Hindu, evolution materialist, whether you're a Jew, a Muslim, a Christian, whatever we believe, our faith shapes our sense of vocation, which for blessing and courage shapes culture. Um, and so a lot of my writing is there. So, Stephen, thank you very much. Now, am I... I'm not going to say that you are currently Professor of Marketplace Theology and Director at Vancouver. Are you still... Did you tell me earlier that you, you weren't? No, I, I, we moved two and a half years ago. You've moved two and a half years ago. Yes, yeah. okay. Back, back to Washington, D.C. So what's your current title? <laughs> if you have well, one. when I write endorsements for books or things like that, which I do pretty often, I will, I will say, more often than not, Senior Fellow for Vocation and the Common Good for the M.J. Murdoch Charitable Trust. There we go. I also serve as Senior Advisor to the Mars Corporation Economics and Mutuality Project. 
So. And so we shall call you, sir. Thank you. It's okay. been a fantastic half hour. Thank you so much. I wish I could know more about you, Brent. Thank you very much for the conversation. <laughs> yeah, I'm very boring. Uh, I'm, no. just, I'm, I'm just the interviewer, sir. I just ask uh, questions. Very, 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 very good. <laughs> and thank you to our creative team at Liquid Edge Creative, who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Stephen, thank you, sir. You're very welcome. God bless you. Thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com. <laughs>